know what you said about me, woman, don't you? What? Well, you ain't nothing but a big cat that's scratching at my door. You ain't nothing but a big cat that's scratching at my door. You can't purr your pretty chicken, but I ain't gonna rub you no more. You said you was a long hair, but I can see through that. You said you was a long hair, but I can see through that. How's it going, Bizarros? This is Guys Morgan, and welcome to another episode of Bizarro Aficionado. Oh, what a crazy month October was. Not that November is seeming to be any less crazy, but man, it's uh, it's crazy. We're not even into the holiday season yet, so we'll see what that has to bring us. How's everyone out there doing? You know, what's going on? What's new? It's finally fall. It's Starting to get a little colder outside. I think I heard it's supposed to be 18 tomorrow night, the day I'm recording this, which uh, I don't even know what day it is anymore, but it's the day before it's supposed to be 18 outside. But good golly. So some people have been asking me what my plan is for the schedule for the show. Ah, man, I we're coming into the holiday season. Things are kind of crazy. So I'm going to try and get out three shows a month. And if I can put out another one, a fourth one, I will, but I can't promise anything because you know how it is. It's crazy out there. And these do take a little bit of time to uh, produce and, and you know how it is. It's just crazy out there. But like I said, I got some great shows kind of planned. I don't want to give any hints to them because, you know, once I do, something will fall through. And then I'll have to tell you that, no, we're not doing that. And then I look like a jackass and... You know, I can look like a jackass all by myself. I don't need any help. So, let's stop John and let's get into some bizarre news. I try to keep the educational level of the show at the very minimum. I mean maximum. So, uh... I've got some good ones for you this week, but I try to raise the bar in a couple of them, and then we have things such as Colander wearing Pastafarian claims religious discrimination over Ohio's driver's license photo. This is from the Cape Cod Times. Those incredible journalists down at the Cape Cod Times. My cousin Brian lives out in Massachusetts. Hey, Brian, uh, ever read the Cape Cod Times? I don't know. No, no one reads the Cape Cod Times, unless I assume you live on Cape Cod with a guy who wears a colander on his head. But I digress. So, last year, Richard Steve Moser III of Cincinnati went to several Bureau of Motor Vehicle offices near his home, including this one in Green Township, an attempt to get a driver's license photo taken while wearing a colander on his head for what he says are religious reasons. The BMV denied his request, despite him telling the agency that he is a Pastafarian and follower of the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster. That's a thing. If you've never heard of it, do yourself a favor and Google it. It's not quite the Church of Bob, but it's definitely worth reading about. A national, it's a national religious rights organization has taken up his case and written a letter to the BMV saying its denial was discriminatory and unconstitutional. 
And I, I'll, as always, I'll include a uh, link to this article in the show notes. And it does have a picture of this fine gentleman with the nice red colander on his head. And yeah, you can check that out. So a Cincinnati man went to several Ohio Bureau of Motor Vehicle locations near his home last year in an effort to get just one to let him take his driver's license photo wearing a pasta strainer on his head. A red plastic one, in fact. They did not. I know this shocks you. Despite Richard Steve Moser III's insistence that the colander is a religious head covering, and now a national group is fighting on his behalf. The American Humanist Association says the BMB's denial is discriminatory and unconstitutional, but the state agency says its policy allows people to wear religious head coverings in driver's license photos only if they wear them in public and in daily life. Every other religion they're allowed, so why shouldn't I be, said Moser, who said he's read and enjoyed the book The Gospel of the Flying Spaghetti Monster when he was recovering last year from breaking his hips. I think there's a story there that would be much more fascinating on how did Mr. Moser break his hips. Moser said he has since become a follower of the faith, known as a pastafarian and practices the satirical religion of the church, the Flying Spaghetti Monster. The belief was born in 2005 after a man wrote a letter to the Kansas school board saying that if intelligent design would be taught, so should the idea that a flying spaghetti monster created the earth. The religion, which called on specifically, or especially rather, I'm sorry, in European countries, has thousands of members, according to scholars, has a gospel, and is recognized as a religion by some government officials in other states who let adherents get their license photos taken with a strainer atop of their head. Moser said he went from being non-religious to becoming a believer after reading the church's gospel. He even stated an online chapter, even started, I cannot read today, and I'm not even going to edit it out, because you know I can't read. I don't know what happened. I used to be able to read. I used to also be thin, smart, and have hopes and dreams. But, you know, you know how that goes. But he even started an online chapter for other Pastafarians near his home in Cincinnati. The Facebook group, which Moser started a year ago, has 178 members. I like the satire part and all that. There's a lot of satire in the gospel. It's just funny, Moser said. The Ohio BMV driver's manual states that head coverings aren't permitted in photos unless used in conjunction with a recognized religious purpose, but only if usually and customarily worn whenever the person appears in public. Among other reasons, agency spokeswoman Lindsay Borer said in an email, Borer said Pastafarians don't meet that requirement for a religious exemption according to the policy. Upon consideration of Pastafarian's request, the BMV has determined that there is no evidence that members of this religion usually and customarily wear the colander whenever they appear in public, such as at work, school, job interviews, etc., Boer wrote. Moser said that wearing a strainer isn't a requirement of being a Pastafarian, but, he added, if you're a believer of the faith, you're expected to get your driver's license photo wearing a colander. Moser said he felt discriminated against when the clerks at the Cincinnati area BMVs that he visited all denied his request. I was told we're not a religion, he said. 
Grant Shiva, a Baltimore-based writer and scholar who focuses on American culture and religion, studied Pastafarianism in 2017 and the search for legitimacy by some of its members. He called it a religion that challenges our idea of what religion is, and although the religion started as satire, he said, it has evolved into a genuine movement. There are groups of believers around the world, including in Germany, New Zealand, and Russia. Some have noodle masses and buildings where they congregate, Chevre says. It provides a community. There's a sense of fun to it, Shiva said. Shiva, Chevre, Steve. He's now Steve. It offers some of the scaffolding of traditional religion, but in the spirit of silliness and joy, I think that's attractive to a lot of people. As to whether people and the government should take Pastafarians and their religion seriously, Shevra Shivra Steve said the religion embraces the fact that the story it tells of the flying spaghetti monster is fictional. Some members probably believe the religion is a critique of mainstream faith, Shevra Shiva Steve said, and others might think that they're expanding on society's notion of what a religion can be. Shiva Shevra Steve added that people being offended or taken aback when someone such as Moser shows up at the BMV wearing a colander says more about us than it does about Pastafarians. The Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster is one of the several parody religions, he said, although most don't survive or even get as much notice as Pastafarians have. Discordianism, founded in the 1960s to hail Eris, the Greek goddess of chaos, is one of the first parody or postmodern religions, Shiva Shiva Steve said. Its members embraced and revealed in their religion being made up, he said. After being denied by the Ohio BMV, can we say Ohio BMV one more time? Moser reached out to the American Civil Liberties Union and the American Humanist Association. Monica L. Miller, the Humanist Association's legal director, said the Washington, D.C.-based nonprofit group, which advocates for religious freedom, decided to take up Moser's cause because it represents all matters that touch on separation of church and state. On October 8, the group sent a four-page letter to the Ohio BMB registrar on Moser's behalf, arguing that allowing Moser to wear the colander would be a simple and reasonable accommodation. Massachusetts allowed a Pastafarian woman to wear a colander in her photo in 2015, Miller said. Arizona also allows it as an approved head covering. Miller added that the suspects that oh, I'm sorry. Miller added that she suspects that Moser was denied at the BMV because his religion isn't mainstream. The BMV is not a liberty to decide which religions may be afforded this privilege and which religions may not. Miller wrote in the letter, to deny any person the right to afford themselves of this accommodation merely because their religion is not sufficiently well known or understood by the BMB would be a plain violation of the First Amendment. So what do you think? I mean, I guess we could look at, look at this in several ways. One, if they go ahead and just keep allowing this, then I, what's, I can come in there with a cheese grater on my head and say, well, I'm from the religion uh, followers of the great and benevolent cheese, which doesn't sound like a terrible idea, and I may start. But and and then on the other hand, I, I don't know. I I guess I can look at it where he should absolutely have the right. You know, he's doing this to be 
contrarian to be a jerk off, but and and that's fine because that's also part of what the flying spaghetti monster is all about. And is it is it any more ridiculous than anything else we do or wear or interact and for the sake of religion? I don't know. All right, what do we got next here? Let me see something good here. Okay, we got the Australian's criminal slang dictionary. The flash language reflected the makeup of the British penal colony at the time. This is an article by Matthew Taub over at Atlas Obscura. And uh, the headline is Australia's first published dictionary was dedicated to convict slang. Well, it's, if you're in the early to mid-1800s and you're in Australia, then... Uh, I'm just adjusting my mic there. Then uh, it's pretty much large percentage of it is... Uh, is going to be convicts. But um, if you have uh, Hulu out there, there's a movie on there called The Nightingale. And I guess I really should do an official uh, review of it. It's a great film. It's by the uh, director, and I, I, I apologize, I forget her name, but the director that did The Duke, which is also a great movie. Uh, the Nightingale is a brutal, brutal, brutal film. <laughs> Uh, and there's no holds barred. The killing is brutal. The, the the emotion in the film is brutal. So this is not something you want to watch with your kids. Or if 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 you can't take violence or you're sensitive to, to violence, this is not something you want to watch. Because it's I don't want to give anything away to the film. But it's brutal. I'll, I'll just leave it at brutal. But in itself, it's also a very beautiful film. It's beautifully shot. It's beautifully written. It's beautifully acted. It's just tough. It's a, it's a tough film. And the, you know, it's, but if, if you have Hulu, check out The Nightingale. But again, I digress. So let's get into slang here. So on February 25th, 1832, the Sydney Monitor reported an arrest for illegal gambling. But not in so many words. Four men, Thomas Cheeseman, he could join my new religion, the uh, great and benevolent cheese. Thomas Cheeseman, John Drew, Michael Reardon, and John Webster were apprehended on Bathurst Street for tossing half-pence coins from a wooden plank and placing bets on which would land on heads and which on tails. They were spinning the mags. The arresting officer, one Constable Sutland, told those assembled in the courtroom later, according to the unusually detailed newspaper account. What do you say? asked Captain Rossi, understandably puzzled. I don't understand you. I did, I, that's my terrible Australian accent coming out there. I will stop that immediately. Constable Sutland then explained, in a manner truly impressive and edifying to both reach and bystanders, oh, bench and bystanders, and with much historical tact, that spinning the mags, your worship, is slang for toss halfpenny, a more common name for the game of chance they were playing. The details of the crime sufficiently clear the men were jailed for a week. There's no way of knowing whether Constable Sutland had his own copy, but a special dictionary had in fact been published some years earlier for just that kind of scenario. James Hardy Vaux's Vocabulary of the Flash Language typically regarded as the very first dictionary produced in Australia, translated into plain English some 700 slang terms regularly used by people engaged in illegal activity. Vaux translated this flash language while himself imprisoned at Newcastle in southeastern Australia. 
He even dedicated the book to his supervising commandant. Between 1788 and 1868, more than 160,000 people were transported from England, Wales, Ireland, and Scotland to the opposite side of the world to serve their time in Australia, help establish a new outpost for the British Empire, and generally no longer be in the British Isles anymore, which I think was the main part. It was an anxious time, with the disruption of the Industrial Revolution driving a rise in petty theft. The state managed the turmoil in part by instituting forced transportation to the colonies. Often for minor infractions, if there were infractions at all, many of those transported, in fact, were political prisoners. Once the American Revolution put an end to transportation there, Australia became the primary destination. Those put on the ship ended up in places such as Port Arthur Penal Station in Tasmania. Now, that is where the Nightingale takes place. I completely forgot you know, why I brought that up. But yeah, it's this penal colony in Tasmania where this whole movie takes place and that you see the treatment of the prisoners by British soldiers and the indigenous people, how they are treated. And you can imagine how both of those go. But see, where were we? Uh, Tasmania, the Hyde Park barracks in Sydney and Fremantle prison near Perth, among many others. Once notorious for their awful conditions and hard labor, a number of these sites are now museums of Australia's convict period. Visitors can glimpse that part in relics ranging from gallery of prisoner tattoos to an unconsecrated convict church. The influx of incarcerated persons not only brought more European people to ask to Australian shores, but also variations on the English language. What Vaux called flash language was also known as thieves cant, an extensive set of code words that had flourished on the margins of English society for centuries. Flash, in other words, is flash for cant. Scholars agree that the cant itself did not really evolve into a specifically Australian version, and Vaux's publication followed centuries of older cant dictionaries produced in England. What set Vaux apart, however, was its unique utility in the Australian setting. 19th century Australia was a flash paradise, teeming with accused outlaws, former outlaws, and people who knew outlaws. So it follows that officials, policemen, and others would want to be familiar with the argot all around them. According to a paper by L.L. Beer, a scholar of Canton, retired historian from Illinois State University, 75% of New South Wales population in 1819, when the dictionary was published, was either current or former convicts or their descendants. By 1828, the proportion had risen to 87%. I believe the movie The Nightingale takes place around 1825, so it's in that heading to that apex of the 87%. And while it declined thereafter because of free immigration, it still stood at 59% in 1851. And that was just New South Wales, the region of the Australian mainland that includes Sydney and Newcastle. Population data for the island of Tasmania, meanwhile, distinguished between recent arrivals and the Aboriginal people who had lived there for a millennia and tended to stay away from colonial settlements. In 1822, Beer writes, 58% of Tasmania's non-Aboriginal population had criminal convictions. Vaux himself had been transported to Australia on three different occasions and served some of his time in the Hyde Park barracks. Recently, to mark the dictionary's 200th anniversary, the Australian writer and illustrator Simon Bernard published an updated version of the Vaux text. 
featuring historical examples of the terms usage in court and criminal records, and eventually the assimilation of certain words into the mainstream. Bernard says that one of the most striking patterns in his research is the degree to which criminal justice officials could not understand any of what they were told by defendants. According to Beyer, special cant interpreters were called into the courts of New South Wales beginning in the 1790s. So this had become basically a complete dialect that they needed interpreters to to explain for them. That's crazy. Bernard found documented examples of words that had to be translated in court, such as buzzman, buzzcove, or buzzgloak in Vaux's dictionary, meaning simply a a pickpocket that was general, while other terms were mattingly specific. Consider cat and kitten rig for the practice of stealing pewter court and pint pots from public houses. Kant was so important and so elusive to the justice system that some defendants used their fluency to lighten their sentences. After John Farrell, Thomas Hopkins, and George Lyons robbed a panty, a house per vo, in 1786, Farrell explained to the judge that panty is the meaning of the house and was spared the death sentence issued to his co-defendants. So the, the co-defendants <laughs> got death for breaking into a house. We complain about what we have here. Today, feral would probably be called a snitch, but only because the word has moved from thieves' cant into our common parlance. To impeach or to betray your accomplices, writes Vaux, is, is termed snitching upon them. A person who becomes king's evidence on such a person is said to have turned snitch. It's hardly the only word from Vaux's dictionary to have escaped the argot of the time. In January 28, 1833, crime report in the Sydney Herald referred to the arresting officer as the Charlie, a watchman, according to Vaux, and then stated that the arrest, one Mary Malone, tried bonnetting the officer, making false excuses to him, before ultimately bolting. Yeah, well, you get it. Then the duck introduction to this updated text, Bernard lists several other words from the dictionary that have persisted, specifically in Australian English. Dana, excrement, helped give way to dunny, or toilet, togs, or it's clothing, and has become slang for swimwear. Ridge, which is gold, is preserved in ridgy-ditch, Aussie for good or genuine, according to the Oxford English Dictionary. And there was at least one cant term unique to the Australian variety, and inexplicably tied to the landscape itself. Bushed, defined by Vaux as poor, without money, comes from escapees and formerly incarcerated people who fought to survive in the wilderness, what Australians called the bush. According to Therese Marie Meyer, a scholar of Australian convict history at Germany's Martin Luther University of Halle-Wittenberg, that's a mouthful, I don't even know, keep thinking you can get that on a sweatshirt. If you look closely, you might even find some cant on walls surviving from colonial Australia. According to Bernard, the words grog for me, liquor for me, are still visible, etched into a wall in Bothwell, Tasmania, uh, near the name of the likely scribe, William Bray. Once a prison that Brothwell building is now a private residence, and Bernard says that most convict-era graffiti consists of pictures rather than words. Yeah, sure it does, and we can all imagine what those pictures look like. To be sure, many cant terms have also been lost to time, and 
Encountering them today in Vaux's dictionary suggests a kind of subversive poetry, too, rich to have ever been real. Too rich to have ever been real. While compiling his updates to Vaux's text, Bernard came across a few particularly beguiling examples. His favorites include Resurrection Cove, or Someone Who Stole Bodies from the Grave, and Morning Sneak, an early day act of thievery executed by slipping in at the door unperceived while the servant or shopman is employed cleaning the steps, windows, etc. Simply uttering these words, really anything the police couldn't understand, could put one at risk of arrest. Bernard details an 1845 case, for example, in which a pair of suspects would have evaded the police but had a passerby not heard the men using flash language, prompting the cops to take another look and ultimately reincarcerate the men at Hyde Park Barracks. Likewise, when James Gavahan had overheard muttering about a shiv, now a common term for a makeshift knife, he got himself two years at Port Arthur. In January 16, 1832, listing of police incidents in the Sydney Herald was explicit reporting that one Mary Connor was institutionalized for a month after throwing all the hard words in Hardy's Bow's dictionary at her mistress's head. According to Meyer, Kant is a sociolect, a variety of language spoken by a particular social class, rather than a dialect tied to a specific region or location. Well, excuse me. One of Bow's terms, in fact, is family, a title he gave to all who get their living upon the cross or through a legal activity. These examples illustrate the fear that authorities and the non-Flash-speaking public had of Flash or can't, and that has not only facilitated crime but also inspired it. The policies of some Australian prisons, said Bernard, addressed this fear by condemning the incarcerated to total silence. That carceral method wasn't pioneered in Australia. I knew it. He had, it had previously been practiced in Philadelphia at what many of you out there know as Eastern State Penitentiary, which was a Quaker penitentiary. And uh, they also used silence in their service and had incorporated that into the uh, prison system. And if you ever go there, they'll explain that. It's a, it's a pretty interesting place. At the same time, that perception may be part of what can't or flash currency among those who spoke it. Byer cites people who complained at the time that Kant played a role in fostering solidarity among convicts, and who noted that incarcerated laborers have a strong esprit de corps which is kept up by their speaking a language so full of Kant expressions as to become a separate, full dialect. Ha <laughs> ha, I became a dialect, I was correct. It was, in a way, an instrument of resistance, an expression of identity and self-determination among those who had lost their freedom, often for little or no offense, and been forced across the world. Well, that's messed up, isn't it? Yeah, I, not many realize that Georgia was the penal colony over here, and uh, I don't really know a lot about that or what years it was, though I assume it was pre-revolution, but I'm not sure what those times are. You can uh, you can Google that, or maybe it'll be another episode, or maybe something somewhere will know something. All right, let's see what we got next here. Ah, here's a good one. The Basement of Blood. So, Bagley family's basement gets flooded with animal blood. Bagley, Iowa. What sounds like a scene from a horror film is reality for the Lestina family. 
Their basement was filled with nearly five inches deep of animal blood, fat, and bones as a result of drainage from a meat locker next door. How big was the meat locker? The Listina family has lived in their home next to the doll's custom meat locker for 10 years, but have never had major issues until recently. Nick Listina said the ownership of the plant changed within the last year. They haven't reached out at all. In fact, they haven't taken any accountability for it, Listina said. They say it's not their fault and told me good luck. If I want to do anything about it, that's on my dime and my schedule. Channel 13 News reached out to Doll's Custom Meat Locker for comment, but it appeared it was closed on Monday. Listina said he's been in touch with the Iowa Department of Natural Resources, which is handling the investigation, and has been in touch with the meat locker. The meat locker, from my standpoint, has been pretty cooperative. They have worked with me to come up with a permanent solution so the animal blood, fat, and all that stuff is no longer discarded down those floor drains, said Kevin Wilkin, an environmental specialist senior to the Iowa Department of Natural Resources. He said the owner, Caitlin Dahl, said the meat locker had killed hogs and cattle on Thursday, October 3rd, and flushed the blood down the floor drain. Upon questioning, she said she believes the floor drain discharges into a tile, which is likely connected to Listina's floor drain via the same pipe. The DNR got the Iowa Department of Health involved because it was a health hazard. The department recommended their family of seven live somewhere else in the meantime, to avoid any potential biohazards. Listina said the Dahl family has been non-compliant in helping cover any costs. Now why should they? Figures. I'm looking into thousands of dollars with cleanup, over 2,000 just to sanitize the basement, he said. I don't have thousands of dollars to throw away at this. Listina said the blood would have continued rising if it weren't for his sump pump, which the DNR also confirmed. No one wants to see that, smell that. I wouldn't want that for anybody in their house, he said. In the meantime, their families continuing living elsewhere while they try to clean up the mess. Many items in the basement were ruined, including a bed they were saving for their one-year-old son. DNR is continuing to investigate this, man this matter and told the meat locker to cease its discharge immediately until they develop a permanent solution. I would uh, really wish that I really wouldn't wish this on anybody, but all I can do is keep moving forward and try and take care of the problem, Listina said. Good God. How is there even a question as who is at fault here? Considering a previous uh, company ran this with no issues, they, can't, they come in, flush it all down, and now it's in this basement, but it's all on his dollar? And DNR is complaining about him not complying? Unbelievable. There's going to be ugly lawsuits there. And that's the basement of blood. Yeah, well, that's our news for this week. And again, if you have a news article, if you find something really weird and you'd like to send it out to the show, definitely send it over here. If you're in the group, send it in direct message, or you can send it to bizarroaficionado at gmail. And uh, I'll go over all those again at the end of the show. But that is Bizarro News for this episode. And we're back. I I still can't get over the basement of blood. I mean, 10 years they lived there, not a single problem. New company takes over and bang, basement floods. 
and Department of Natural Resources, just all they have to say is, they're not being compliant and paying what they need to pay. No, man, they shouldn't be paying anything. Obviously, whatever this new company is doing is completely different than the old company. And then you're going to say I'm responsible to clean up their environmental mess. And that's my fault that my sump pump comes on and is pumping blood and fat and bone bits out into the street. <sighs> wrong with you. I don't know. What's wrong with everybody today? Whole world's a mess. Let's go on a road trip. Let's do the bizarre market. You're wandering your town and turn into an alley you have never noticed before. The sights and sounds of an ancient marketplace surround you. You have found the Market Bizarro. Welcome, traveling bizarros. The Market Bizarro is taking us all the way to Wuhan, China in this episode. This is also from Atlas Obscura, and this is the Sword of Gaojian. The ancient sword lay in a waterlogged tomb for 2,500 years, but managed to remain relatively untarnished and impressively sharp. In 1965, an archaeological team discovered a series of ancient tombs along an aqueduct on the Zhang River Reservoir in Zhanghao, China. They discovered more than 2,000 artifacts, but none were more impressive or surprising than the Sword of Galjian. The archaeologists found the sword lying next to a human skeleton in a water-damaged casket. The whole tomb was sodden, having been soaked in underground water for more than a thousand years. So when the team unsheathed the sword from its wooden scabbard, no one was expecting to see a pristine artifact. The scabbard, with its black lacquer finish, proved an almost airtight fit around the ancient sword. Thanks to this and the chemical composition of the sword, the magnificent blade was almost untarnished and retained an impressively sharp edge. The edge has frequently been described as razor sharp, but that would well be an exaggeration. The Hubei Department of Culture described the blade as easily cutting through 20 pieces of hard paper. The state of preservation was made all the more impressive when the sword was dated to the spring and autumn period of Chinese history, which ran approximately from 771 to 403 BC. That meant that the blade was around 2,500 years old, and placed it in a period of epic Chinese heroes, many of whom have taken on an almost mythical status in Chinese culture. The sword has a total length of 22 inches, and a 3.3-inch hilt. The exquisitely forged blade was made primarily of copper, but the edges have a higher tin content, making them harder and able to keep a sharper edge. Both sides of the blade are decorated with a repeating rhombi pattern, their dark lines standing out from the sword's overall golden hue. The guard, meanwhile, is inlaid with blue crystals and turquoise. On one side of the blade are eight characters engraved in what is known as Birdworm Seal Script. Six of these ancient characters have been deciphered. The script reads, King of You, and made this sword for his personal use. The other two characters could not be identified, but analysts believe that they state the name of the aforementioned King of You. These intriguing details provoked much debate as to the owner of the sword. Nine kings had ruled Yu during the period and attri were attributed to the sword, making identifying one of the true owners no easy task. But after studying both the sword and the tomb for many months, archaeologists, historians, and Chinese linguists came to a consensus. 
The sword belongs to Guizhan, who ruled the kingdom of Yu from 496 to 465 BC. Guizhan was known for his perseverance in times of hardship, and for relinquishing the trappings of his kingly position. He supposedly ate a diet more suitable for a peasant, and sometimes ate bile to remind himself of the humiliation he once suffered as a captive of the state of Wu. So it seems reasonable, really, that a king who chose to eat slop and bile at least deserved a fancy sword. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. The Sword of Guizhan is currently housed in the Hubei Provincial Museum in the Wuchang District of Wuhan in Hubei Province, a landlocked province in central China. The museum, in case you just happen to be going out for milk and enter into Wuhan, Hubei, the museum is open Tuesday to Sunday from 9 to 5, and the entrance is free. All right, bizarros, from wherever in the hell that was in China to... The Trippy History of Peyote, the Mysterious Navajo Hallucinogen. Peyote has been used for years by Native American church members, but for the rest of the world, it's a class one substance and it's illegal to use. In 1970, the United States published the Comprehensive Drug Abuse Prevention and Control Act. The law organized all control substances into classes, and depending on the class the drug fell into, made most of them illegal. However, one of these drugs, a naturally occurring psychedelic known as peyote, managed to slip through the cracks thanks to a loophole. As the drug is used in Native American religious ceremonies, the consumption of it for religious purposes is legal, while use for observational, scientific, or journalistic intent is permitted by the DEA. So, recreational use is still illegal, though many users claim it's very lightly regulated. The mysterious legality of the drug, combined with the wild tales that users bring back from the region where it grows, has resulted in an almost mystical air surrounding peyote, and a need to discover what all the hype is about. It's rare to find someone today who hasn't ex experimented or experienced psychedelic drugs at least once in their life. Over 20 million Americans admit to having tried one in the past, and 1.3 million admit to taking them on a regular basis. But of all those psychedelic drug trips, the bulk of which are on the wildly popular MDMA, almost none of them are on peyote. The rarity of people who've tried the drug is likely due in part to its rarity as a plant. Known scientifically as Lafophora willemsi, peyote grows only in northern Mexico and two small regions of southern Texas near Laredo. It grows underground in the form of a stout, tough cactus. Usually, only the crown of the plant is visible on the ground when you're walking around, and the strong bitter taste, um, of which keeps it safe from animals, is kind of hard to take. The size of the plant ranges from golf ball to softball size. The older ones are larger, and the regular users say the smaller, younger ones are more potent. According to renowned psychedelic drug expert Dr. John Halpern, the effects are similar to most other hallucinogens. The active ingredient that results in the psychedelic trip is mescaline. Not much experimental research has been done on the drug, probably unless you're the CIA, so most of the theories are educational guesses rather than facts. Halpern claims that a full dose of peyote, roughly 400 milligrams, with a 1-3% mescaline content could result in an 8-12 to hour high. However, not many inexperienced user users will ever reach to that level. To consume a full dose, one has to eat between 10 and 12 buttons or tiny slices of the inner peyote flesh. Described as extremely bitter with a texture similar to a green pepper, can 
consuming 10 of them is not pleasant. Additionally, users will end up with an intensely dry mouth. When taken recreationally, usual drug side effects occur. Dry mouth, mild anxiety. <laughs> mild, that's funny. Lethargy and an inability to concentrate all follow a dose of peyote. But unlike most other drugs, there's no clear beginning, middle, or end. According to Laurel Tuhoy, a writer for Vice who consumed peyote while on a trip to Mexico, the effect was dreamy. At times I felt mildly sick, but that could have been due to the heat or dehydration as much as the peyote. <laughs> She's new to this, isn't she? She described in her account of the trip, When the feelings were strongest, I had the familiar mind twitch I often associate with psychedelics. I thought I could hear the emptiness of the desert. The first few hours took on a dreamy quality, and I was unable to focus fully on anything. The later hours were more lucid, and the experience had no sharply defined start, peak, or end. I still felt the dreary, dreamy, drifting effects the next day. Everything was amplified, she said. I was thirstier, the desert was hotter, and the ground was harder. It was easy for me to imagine how peyote could enhance a religious experience. The real reason that peyote is so revered and freely grown in Mexico comes from the Native American culture's long-time use of it in the religious ceremonies. For thousands of years, Native Americans in central and northern Mexico have been ingesting peyote for spiritual purposes. The intended effects of the drugs consist of heightened awareness, especially of one's surroundings and emotions. Halpern spent five years studying the use of peyote by the members of the Native American Church at the Navajo Nation in the southwestern United States. He described how they used the drug to enhance their emotions during ceremonies for healing and prayer. In one instance, a group of 20 people sat in a teepee burning sage and consuming peyote in order to help a husband and wife duo work through the fears about their finances. <laughs> I don't think there's enough peyote to get me over the fears of my finances. Overall, Native American populations tend to have a higher rate of alcoholism. More than twice the national average in contrast, those populations who regularly use peyote, such as the Native American church members of the Navajo Nation, have extremely low rates. They claim that peyote keeps them sober and healthy, and after his years of research, John Halpern suspects they are suspects they are correct. Still, regardless of its relatively harmless side effects and potential for therapeutic cures, peyote is still considered a class 1 substance and is illegal to possess for personal recreational use. Religious ceremonies and scientific or journalistic research aside, those hoping to get their hands on this potential miracle drug are out of luck. That is, unless they're willing to drive to the middle of the Mexican desert and dig it up themselves. Oh, that's peyote. I could say more, but I won't. <laughs> so that's that. Take from it what you will, and a uh, little introduction out there. And uh, maybe you've had an experience that you'd like to share. If so, uh, send that over to us at uh, bizarroaficionado at gmail.com. You don't have to share it if you're in the public uh, Facebook group or anything like that. Just send it over here and maybe we'll use it on a future episode. Let's see, where do we go next? Oh, yes. So this is uh, from Newsweek. A 24-year-old man identified only as Mr. LV visited a hospital in Guangdong Province, southeastern China, in October, the New York Post has reported, citing the Asia Wire news agency. LV told doctors he'd been experiencing a, quote, sharp pain, unquote, in his right ear. 
Dr. Zhang Yinjin, an ear, nose, and throat specialist at Sanhe Hospital who treated the man, told Asia Wire, He said his ear hurt a lot, like something was scratching or crawling inside. It caused a lot of discomfort, the doctor said. The patient said a member of his family had previously shown a light inside his ear and found a huge bug inside. <laughs> Dr. Yijin explained the man's ear canal. Inside, he found an adult cockroach surrounded by her newly born insect offspring. The insects were German cockroaches. Dr. Yijin said he found over 10 baby cockroaches inside the man's ear canal. They were already running around, he said. LV told doctors he would leave food by his bed at night. Speaking to local media, Dr. Jiang Tengchang, deputy head of ENT at the hospital, explained this likely attracted the bugs. The adult cockroach might have viewed the man's ear as an incubation chamber and crawled inside, said Cheng Chang. Hospital staff used tweezers to remove the adult cockroach and her babies from the man's ear. Oh, God. Sanhe Hospital said in a statement seen by Asia Wire that despite his ordeal, LV was left with minor injuries to his ear. Doctors sent him home with a course of antibiotics. Now, to those worried about suffering a similar fate... Teng Chiang advised practicing good hygiene. How about that? As well as disinfecting drains and sewers and fitting mosquito nets over windows to prevent cockroach from entering the home or just not being a generalized filth head. That'll stop insects from flying or crawling into your nose and ears, said Teng Chiang, I think is correct. Last year, a woman from Florida detailed a similar experience. Katie Holly said she and her husband bought a new home in the state. Due to the humid Florida climate, <laughs> Florida, what a surprise. They weren't surprised when they found cockroaches at the property. Holly paid for an exterminator to rid their home of the bugs. Man, when I was down in the Keys, you're not prepared for palmetto bugs, which is a fancy tropical name for really huge cockroach. One night, she shot up out of a bed, disoriented. I could feel that my ear was not right. I grabbed a cotton swab and gently inserted it into my ear to see what was up, and I felt something move, she said. She pulled out the cotton swab and saw two legs stuck to it. Oh, God. Legs. Legs that can only belong to an adventurous palmetto bug exploring my ear canal, said Holly. How big is her ear? Her husband looked inside her ear and confirmed, can confirm, there was a cockroach inside. He tried to pull the roach out with the tweezers from the thickest part of its body, but only managed to grab hold of two legs. It was an awful feeling, one that was not necessarily painful, but psychologically torturous, she recalled. The doctor at A&E was able to remove the roach from her ear. Now I am roach-free and feeling better. I do think that my ear will heal faster than my psyche, she said. So, there's nothing like a story about cockroaches in your ear. I think that's enough market for today. How about you? So, that is Market Bizarro for this episode. And that brings us to a new segment this week. So when you think of 
something strange, something truly bizarre, something that you just can't wrap your head around that doesn't make any sense. What do you think of? Teenagers. Yeah. Yeah, I don't get them either. I was one. I still don't get them. Not sure I understood them or got them then. So I've taken it upon myself to try and get some answers for us. So I've gone out into the field and tracked down an actual live teenager, and I've asked them some questions. And this, this is my experience. Ask a teenager. After many years of realizing I have no clue what's going on in the world anymore, I knew I had only one course of action. I needed to track down an actual teenager. After a few unsuccessful attempts... Excuse me, are you a teenager? Where you go? I have candy! It became quite evident that the only way I was going to track down an actual teenager was to go into the wild and find one for myself. One that hasn't been affected by the adult world, the real world, as it were. What you're about to hear in these segments are my diary from my adventures with asking a teenager. After much difficulty and after finally having in-depth negotiations and discussions with the local chieftain, I was finally given permission to talk to an actual teenager. So here with me now, an actual teenager. Teenager, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Your English is very good. I know. Are you are you, are you able to understand what I'm saying? Yeah. Can you understand what I'm saying, though? N- not most of the time, no. But well, that's I'm why we're here today. Exactly. To make great steps for mankind and the understanding <laughs> of teenage culture. Awesome. So we have we ha- we have questions, teenager. We as a society have questions. Okay, shoot. So in this first installment, we won't get too deep. You know, we don't want to scare your people away. Yeah. And don't worry, we're not going to be moving you to reservations other than the high schools we already have you corralled in. Ugh. So I have to ask you, what is a streak? So on Snapchat, a streak is where like. Okay, so you'll send it to a bunch of people, and when they send one back, it adds one to your streak, and the streak just counts how many days you've, like, snapped back and forth. So a streak is how many times you have sent selfies to some other random person. Well, usually mine's a picture on my wall. Like, it just has to be, like, an actual snap. It can't be, like, a message. So it has no point whatsoever. It's a picture of your knee or the wall or a carpet. (laughs) Um, A streak exists for streak's sake. Yeah, my highest one is like 470 days, I think. I looked earlier. <laughs> right. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> See, in my day, streaks were brown spots in your underwear. Oh, that's not what I thought that was in your day. I saw it in Riverdale. <laughs> it, it's also when a person would strip naked and run across a yeah. football or, or basketball or some sort of sporting thing. Or there's actually a streak, like marathon run type thing. Well, on on Riverdale, they, like, ran through the hallways, but... That's streak-ing. Oh, I got you. Yeah. Okay. What is a 
yeet. <laughs> so yeet can have like a lot of different definitions, but it can be like, so it started out like when it first started, it came from a video of this guy like dancing and he makes a motion with his arms like he's throwing a basketball and he's like yeet. So like now when you throw stuff, you say yeet or it can also mean like, I don't really know how to explain so it. So did it start as a vine? I don't know whether it was a vine, but I know it was a video. I don't remember. It could be. All right. So um, we got the deets on yeets. Yeah. But wh- why, why does one say yeet other than when they're throwing something? Well, it can. It, well, when people first started using it, it was like, I'm so excited about this. Like, hey, like I aced my math test. Yeet. But now it's more like sarcastic as the words gotten like more tired. I thought I had understood it. And then, you know, I would use it and be like, yeah, yeet. And then yeah. I apparently was infringing on the woot. So I got my yeets and woots kind of conflagrated. <laughs> and uh, it seemed to have evolved before my eyes. And now yeet yeah. is sarcastic of like. Yeah. So you're like, so now instead of saying I aced my test, yeet, you'd be more like, I got a 20% on my test, yeet. Like, it's like, I did bad, but like, I don't really yeah. care. <laughs> <laughs> We're doomed. <laughs> Uh, the next one I have is ARDS. That's A-R-D-S. ARDS. Well, when people say ARD, it literally just means all right. So just put I some more. I said it to you like before we even started. You were like, you should probably like, sit up more. And I was like, ARD. There isn't even a D in all right. Well, it's the T. It makes like a D sound. Uh, I'm, I'm just here to get the answers, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Doesn't mean I understand it any more than you do. Oh, boy. Now the big one. Oh, yes. We keep hearing about Visco girls. <laughs> what in the name of all that is holy is a Visco girl? So I'm like kind of a Visco girl, so it works out for me. But like, so Visco girls usually, let's talk about the, let's talk about what they look like. How to recognize a Visco girl. Usually they'll have their hair in a messy bun. They'll have like the cowrie shell necklaces. Do you know what I'm talking about? Or the puka shell necklaces. Yeah, they been around since yeah. like tw- you know, 2800 bc yeah, so we have it's this a shell. Yeah. okay we have oversized t-shirts like so oversized you can't tell if they're wearing shorts or not and then you have like either birkenstocks or crocs that's usually what they wear so like sandals or the clogs the sandals the clogs if it's what are the other ones crocs, crocs? Yeah, yeah yeah um i have crocs so you have a lot of crocs i have two pairs but as you came into the dwelling where the teenager lives, <laughs> the first thing you would notice is the extensive amount of foot coverings. Lots of socks. Ceremonial foot coverings and and toe keepers <laughs> as soon as you enter the dwelling. So, Visco girls also carry around their hydro flask. So, that's you a key part. Are. Key part. Full of stickers, if I might Oh, yeah. Usually right. covered in stickers from, like, Pira Vida and, like, Vineyard Vines and stuff. That's the pink elephant, John. It's a whale. Right. <laughs> so, Visco girls. They What's the other one? Vines, and then what was the other one you said? Stickers? Oh, Pura Vida. It's a Pura Vida. It's like bracelets and jewelry and stuff. They look really cute. I have a Pura Vida, but I'm not wearing it right now. I've had Velveeta. Is that similar? <laughs> no, because one's macaroni. One's cheese, processed cheese spread. Like macaroni and cheese. Like the well, Yeah, but it's not a macaroni is a macaroni. Velveeta is a processed cheese food. Yeah, but they have mac and cheese. I know, but it's not mac. It's just the cheese. Close enough. Right. I'm trying my best. 
you are. So if I understand this right, so Visco girls can be recognized by a side of the head ponytail with like 426 scrunchies. Like giant messy buns. Oh yeah, the scrunchies. I forgot about those. Uh, messy buns. Yeah. Either some sort of uh, Birkenstock or uh, Crocs. And the oversized oversized t-shirt. t-shirts showing that they're not sure if they're wearing shorts or not. Yeah. And uh, there are, I believe they're very social, sociopolitically and. and uh, eco-conscious oh yes save the turtles they always want to use the metal straws the metal straws uh-huh save the turtles eh? yeah, well, well, she i she's starting to utter a strange chant here <laughs> ladies and gentlemen um i'm gonna go in a little see if we can get an explanation of what this chant is you you said what there what was it? and i oop. i'm not gonna lie i'm a little frightened I'm not sure if that might be a call for the rest of the teenagers to now jump out of the other huts around the village and attack me, but uh, what does that mean, Ali? I e oop. It just means like and I oop. It comes from a video of Jasmine Masters, and she's like talking, and then she like she stops herself and goes oop, and then Visco girls just kind of started saying it when there's they just said it for everything, honestly. Like any sort of thing could be said to them, and their immediate reaction is just like and I oop and I oop. I'm gonna start using that because I'm cool like that. Don't. You're going to get called a Visco girl. People think they're annoying now. They are like valley girls. Back in my, back in my day, we had valley girls, and they talked strange and were <laughs> usually came from affluent families and were annoying. Oh, and the, like, the What, what is that? From, that comes from, okay. Is that so, the sound the crocs make when you're walking across so you a know hardwood what, like, floor? You know how when people would, like, act like they're laughing, they do, like, a keyboard smash? It's like when you just press a whole bunch of random buttons, and that just means, like, you're laughing? Yeah. Uh, I did that when I was mad. Well, that means, like, you're laughing so hard you can't even, like, type right. So it's just, like, uh. keyboard smash. And now, instead of keyboard smashing all letters, you just do the S and the Ks. It means, like, like you're laughing. That just means, like, it's funny. And I used to do it a lot, but I don't do it anymore because now it's annoying. So everything in your culture is about to just be ictionated for something completely new? I don't even know what that means. Very good. <laughs> all right. So, um... I'm going to ask you a few questions here, just kind of fire these out, and uh, if you know them, maybe you can answer what's going on here. So, uh, first of all, I'm not sure if maybe this is one of your tribal gods or what this (laughs) is, but what exactly is a boogie with a hoodie? (laughs) So, he's like a rapper, singer person, and he has songs. People just call him Boogie now, as far as I know. He's just Boogie. We have the same birthday. Isn't that dope? dope <laughs> my next question is are you extra um i'm not extra but i know some people who are extra i know this will shock you but i have been accused of being extra yeah just a little bit is, is that good depends what is beating your face so that's like when you go like full glam like you have a ton of makeup on and you like look awesome like you like beat your face like me right now we don't have makeup on I don't need makeup. I'm. I just wake up pre-beat. Oh, <laughs> that's good. Guess <laughs> is looking snatched good. Yes, because that means that you're like, like you're. I don't know how to explain it. You're just like good. Like your face is like snatched. So it's like you're on fleek. Yeah. But we don't ever say that anymore, do we? No, that's kind of old. That word kind of got tired. How do you flex? And what is flexing versus posting up? Okay, so when you flex, 
on someone, it means that you're, like, bragging. Like, people go on the internet and, like, quote-unquote flex. Like, have you heard of Lil Tay? Or probably not. Lil Tay's, like, this nine-year-old who would always, like, flex, be like, my life costs more than your mom's rent or something. Like, it was, like, she would always be, like, flexing. I don't think that was right, but, like, she would call herself the youngest flexer of the century or something. It's good to have goals. Yeah. <laughs> but it just means, like, you're bragging about what you have. Like, you're flexing on someone. You could flex on, like, your car, if you have a nice car. Like, you flex on them with your money or your house. Like, yeah. when you got good stuff, you're flexing. And now it comes to be, like, like if I got a really good grade on something, my friend got a bad grade, and I'm like, I got a 100. Like, stop flexing. I see. When we would say, yo, I went straight up and I got flexed, that was like we were getting ready to fight. Well, if you want to fight someone, you can be like, okay, like, post up. Like, I'm going to fight you. Like, post up. Like, I'm so mad at you, I'm going to picture, put a picture of myself on Facebook right now and post up. <laughs> no. No, that's not it. No, I don't know why we say it, but we just kind of do it. It's so like, post up. Like, I'm going to fight you. Like, get ready. <laughs> you live in a strange dual reality out there. Facts. Well, thank you, teenager. This has been very enlightening. I know uh, all my listeners will have a much more... No, I don't know who I'm kidding. They're all still completely confused. But uh, it's okay. we will meet again and talk about other things in the world of the teenager. That's right now. Get it now. Get it. That's right. Oh, yeah. And that brings to a wrap season one, episode four, Bizarro Aficionado. I hope you had a great time. I know I did. Uh, We have a lot of uh, pretty cool plans for upcoming shows, so keep your eye out for those. Again, if you're not a part, if you're listening and you're not a part of the Facebook group, please look us up on Facebook and uh, add yourself to the group. If you'd like to send us an experience, an idea for a show, or just tell me I suck, I just I'm 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 just asking for it now. Uh, you can send us an email at uh, bizarroaficionado at, g- at gmail.com. And uh, I'd like to really thank Kitty Rotten for the use of their music for the opening and closing of the show. Uh, all the information on how to get in contact with them, listen to their music, find out upcoming shows is all going to be in the show notes. Definitely check them out. They are so much fun. And uh, you just you can't beat a rockabilly surf punk. 50s neo-punk jamming ass band with a lead singer with an animated cat head because they're fucking awesome so if you're local if you're in the philadelphia delaware new jersey wherever they're playing or performing get on out there support local music support local shops support local And uh, make sure you keep tuning in here, wherever you get your podcast from, whether it's Podbean through Amazon, Alexa, Stitcher, go in. You can really help out the show if you leave a comment, if you click follow or subscribe, depending on which platform you're using. That really helps me out. So for myself and all the other, well, that would be me, people on the show, thanks a lot for listening and we'll see you next episode. Yeah, you ain't nothing but a big cat It's scratching at my door You ain't nothing but a big cat It's scratching at my door You can't purr your pretty chicken But I ain't gonna rub you no more You said you was a long hair 
But I can see through that You said you was alone here yeah. But I can see through that And mama, I know You're just an old big cat You ain't nothing but a big cat Dispatching at my door Ain't nothing but a big cat Dispatching at my door You can't hurt your pretty Rub it no more, rub it now, baby, rub it out! No more.